Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, April 7th, and today we are talking to Puck Executive Editor Ben Landy about Joseph Robinette Biden, specifically the polls and the politics. Democrats are heading for a midterm disaster. How much of this is Biden's fault? And can he change the conversation before November? And later, we'll hear from Baratunde Thurston on what he's learning about Web3 and crypto. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I am joined to talk all things Joe Biden and midterms today by Puck's executive editor, Ben Landy. How you doing, man? Hey, Peter. Happy to be here. I was relieved to hear that you're going to be dialing back on the sports commentary at the top of the pod because I confess that I, I think I'm the only member of the Puck team that is not participating in the March Madness bracket. I will not ask you about rumors that Gonzaga might go to the Big East, but I will ask you to guess without looking Joe Biden's approval rating right now. I'm going to say 45%. Okay, you're off by four. He's at 41.6%, according to the 538 average. Now I want you to guess the last time Biden's approval rating was over 50%. I'm going to assume it was sometime uh, during the campaign or or shortly around the inauguration. No, no, no. As uh, It was actually right before Afghanistan. So he was doing pretty well from when he came in, around 54%. And then... Delta starts to hit last summer, right before Afghanistan. Then we get all the pictures of Afghanistan. Biden goes uh, in August under 50%. He crosses the dreaded underwater threshold later that month. So his disapproval is higher than his approval. And I'm only pointing this out to note that pretty steadily since last August, not much has changed. And so we wanted this episode to be about Biden's poll numbers and what he can do to fix them. And sometimes it's just atmospherics make it really hard to repair your your public standing. I mean, you are uh, a victim of the environment, the political environment, the economic environment, and and Biden's trying to claw his way out of that. But I think in politics and political journalism, we're always trying to analyze it. What can he do? What can he do? Sometimes he just can't do much. <laughs> I mean, do you think he can do anything? Like, what's his biggest challenge at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I'm sure it's one that Democrats nationally are asking themselves, uh, panicked right now. I think you're right that the the ennui is sort of vague and impressionistic and generalized in a way that's difficult to respond to. You know, inflation is high. People are seeing that when they go to the grocery store. It's higher than it's been in a generation. And it's really hurting people. I mean, that is the number one issue that people tell pollsters they care about right now. The entire global economy is still sort of locked up from supply chain disruptions, COVID, you know, your mail doesn't get where it's supposed to go on time. There are six month waiting lists for new cars, for a new couch. It just feels like everything in the world is sort of coming apart at its seams. And what's really fascinating to me is that if you look at the consumer sentiment surveys, which I did look at that before we talked, well, I, I, uh, I didn't bother to check Biden's polling numbers, which is why you caught me off guard there. But if you look at the consumer sentiment surveys, it's fascinating. People think the economy is as bad now as in like 2009, at, at, at the worst moment of the Great Recession. And it clearly is not. I mean, 
unemployment is at historic lows. The, the labor market is incredibly hot, but people just don't feel good about this economy. I'm glad you mentioned that. Politico actually flagged a nugget from Navigator Research, a Democratic pollster from about a week ago. Maybe this poll even came out last month, but they decided to write about it smartly, I think. The U.S. created 6.5 million jobs in the year after Biden took office. But this poll found, and they asked voters if they believed the fact that the country had created a historic number of jobs in last year. Only 28% of Americans believed the statement, and even more people, 37%, said that the U.S. lost a historic amount of jobs last year. And so the thing that people are telling pollsters is, you know, what we keep reading about. Prices are up. Gas prices are up. It feels like wages are not competing with the rising prices. And so Quinnipiac found that 60% of people say the biggest economic right now is the price of gas and consumer goods. A quarter of Americans say the cost of housing and rent. You know, where I am in LA, where you are in New York, that's certainly an issue, especially when it comes to renters. But I do think this like continues to reveal a little bit of a disconnect between Democratic voters, which is your elite college-educated wine track liberals who live in cities. Typically, they would you know, look at the, maybe the unemployment numbers or whatever market indicators are out there and be like, oh, the economy's good. I don't get it. Why aren't people feeling this? But, you know, if you're a working person, you're driving all the time, you're having a hard time paying rent, you know, you're, maybe you're more of this kind of blue collar, black and brown base of the Democratic Party. Like those, you're feeling that every single day. And that's really hurting Biden's support among, among Democrats right now. So, I, you know, I just, I tend to see a lot of like liberals on Twitter being like, buy electric cars. Like, why don't people get this stuff? The media is making this <laughs> making this stuff up. The economy is fine. It's not fine. I 100% agree with you. And people are definitely feeling the pinch um, when they go to the grocery store every single time they have to fill up the tank. Those things are absolutely real. But I do think that at the same time, there is this growing delta between perception and reality in that when you ask people their feelings in the economy, they'll tell you it's really bad. And then if you ask them about their own personal economic situation, they'll tell you it's pretty good. For sure, there are things that could be better. And, and again, there are real issues that people are facing. But so much of this does feel like there is a sort of media narrative that people have imbibed on, on the left and the right, where they just feel like everything is even worse than it is. And I don't know how Democrats turn that around. I, I would ask you the question, when you talk to Democratic organizers, strategists, operatives. How do you change how people feel about something when it's so sort of intangible? I was talking last week uh, to a person, I will describe this person as a strategist, <laughs> someone who works off and on with Biden. And this person told me Biden has difficulty communicating a clear and concise message. We know that. But he has to go back to reminding people why they elected him in the first place. And some of this you've read about, it's like he didn't get elected to implement another great society uh, or another new deal. Like that really wasn't what people were signing up for. They were signing up to reopen the schools. They were signing up to get shots in arms. They were signing up for normalcy. And Biden has done a lot of those things, except that the long tail impact of the pandemic just continues to flare in ways that were unpredictable. And, you know, a lot of economists think that he might have contributed to inflation with that third stimulus package by sending, flooding the economy with so much more money. 
I just got the sense that that this person was telling me Biden needs to get back to basics a little bit and remind people of what the choice was. And, you know, that's that's the old saw about elections, uh, especially for an incumbent. It's a choice or a referendum. And whoever wins that argument usually wins the election. Right now, the midterms are a referendum on Biden, and that's not good. And he has to bend the public back to thinking about the choice between him and Republicans, the choice between him and Donald Trump. But it's just sort of hard to do that because it makes people have to look in the rear view when most elections are about what's happening right now or what's going to happen around the corner. Yeah, I think that's right. A, a vote for Biden was a vote for the return to normalcy. And in some ways we did get that. You know, we have a very considered and judicious foreign policy right now. I think, um, you know, for the most part, people tend to have a fair amount of faith in the administration's handling of the crisis in Ukraine. You know, they appreciate that the president isn't on Twitter threatening people every other day. But at the same time, of course, we're not getting the normalcy we were promised because we're still living with COVID. We're living with a, a war in Eastern Europe, a rising China, inflation out of control, supply chain disruptions. Life just does not feel normal in the way that we were promised, you know, when we voted for Biden, if you voted for Biden. I think the Biden administration is also a victim of this expectations game because while they did not necessarily promise that Biden was going to be the next FDR or that they were going to deliver a new deal, you know, some of that messaging did make its way out there. And a lot of Democrats, particularly younger progressives, did have this hope that we were at this sort of turning point because he ended up being a lot more liberal than people anticipated coming out of the primaries and into the general election was going to deliver some things that people were waiting on. And then, of course, that expectation crashes straight into the hard political reality that you have Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, who are not going to let any of this pass. And all of a sudden, we're back to square one. The agenda is completely stalled. The economy is sluggish. And it doesn't look like anything's going to happen between now and the midterms when Democrats are likely to lose the House at the very least, too. Biden got elected ultimately with a coalition of progressives, young people, working people of color, independent voters, suburban men and women. And he came to office and all of those people want different things. And that, that's not a new revelation <laughs> about a presidency, but it does feel like he's been caught between the competing pressures of progressives who wanted the world and the independents who didn't necessarily want the world. They just wanted to get back to normal and stop having to watch uh, Rachel Maddow every night or whatever. Anyway, Ben, thanks for joining me on this conversation. I hope you come back on the pod soon because it's nice talking to you rather than have you uh, edit my pieces. <laughs> Even though you're my best editor of all time, I do appreciate that. Thanks, Peter. I, I appreciate the kind words. Happy to be back anytime. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Baratunde Thurston on his beat right now. Thanks, Peter. Uh, here's what I'm taking note of in the Web3 metaverse crypto NFT DAO, DAOiverse. Uh, first up, hacks. Hacks are happening. Hacks are happening. Can I try that out? Whatever. All right. People are stealing mad fake internet money from real people due to some sloppy security happening in all of these Web3 projects. The latest is Axie Infinity, 
uh, probably the most famous of the play-to-earn games. They have built a bridge from their blockchain to the Ethereum blockchain, and somebody hacked that link. Similar things have been happening. This was valued at about $600 million when I last checked. There have been other such breaches, and it's just a sign that we're in the very, very early days. It kind of reminds me of folks robbing trains back in the day filled with gold as they pulled them out of the mines. If you can't mine yourself, take from those who can't. And it's early sort of culture, uh, early practices or lack thereof for security in this, hopefully in the future, more secure, decentralized, uh, autonomous universe we're building. Uh, Two more things on on my short-term radar here. Uh, Creator economy and how fan communities will interact with the artists they love and with the fellow fan members that they love. Uh, You know, DAOs have been heavily predicated on people who want the value of this asset, an NFT, a token, to go up. Uh, But past that speculative, largely nonsense, there are existing communities of passionate people who love a band or love a painter or love a sculptor or love a digital artist or or love a comedian, uh, love a podcaster. And how they rally around that person or that project and how that project embraces them, allows them to vote on proposals, have ownership and upside of some of the IP coming out of it. It's something that Board Ape Yacht Club is experimenting with at the very high end, but I'm more interested as, as a not quite explosively famous artist myself for those who are playing around in the Substack, in the Patreon kind of world, how will the DAO and more decentralized universe of fan support through intellectual property, through activation, through marketing, and through financing and, and crowdfunding, how will that play out in this Web3 future? Finally, I came across a project which is so exciting to me. It's from Outside Magazine, and they have launched an NFT project called The Outerverse. It's so cool. They call it an NFT marketplace with a mission. And this excites me because I love the outdoors. I have a forthcoming show that launches this summer called America Outdoors that I've done with PBS. And the idea of more technology keeping us on more screens and away from nature and away from our fellow human beings makes me deeply sad. So, so what Outside is has launched is what they've described as the first outdoor and active lifestyle NFT marketplace. They're committed to carbon neutrality, of the net revenue goes to sustainability and DEI nonprofits. And they're rewarding people with tokens for doing stuff IRL, uh, in the real world. And maybe you're helping clear a trail. Maybe you're marking something publicly. Maybe you're achieving some backpacking milestone. And so using the online to reward offline, I hope they have success. From what I've read so far, I'll definitely be tracking this project and, and see if I can get myself a token. Could it retroactively apply to all the stuff I've already done outside? Like when I tried to grow vegetables during the pandemic. That's what I'm watching right now, Peter. Thanks for having me and have a joyous day. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.